Hey, welcome back to the Not Quite Compassion podcast. This is episode number 18, entitled, Blessed Are Those Who Hunger and Thirst for Righteousness. Uh, before I jump into things, though, um, man, I, I had I thought I didn't have enough to talk about with this this um, particular beatitude. I didn't have a whole lot to say, and now I, got, I did a little work, and now I got like too much to say, so we got to get moving. But first... Um, Hey, I just realized that there's a lot of people listening to this, which is like really it's it I can't even begin to tell you how encouraging that is. But it, it's also just weird doing a podcast because um hey buddy, my youngest just walked in. Um because it, you feel like cuz there's no there's no one listening when I do it live. I'm just sitting in this room. There's a cat with me right now. Um but that's really about it. So you don't get any feedback. I don't have any way of like seeing a look on your face or you smile or you look confused or uh, <laughs> you checking your phone because you're bored. I don't have any of those um, those indications. And so anytime I get any kind of feedback, it's like really, really, really helpful. So all that to say, if you ever want to leave a comment or uh, give suggestions or have questions, uh, I would I would be so excited to hear them. I really would. I get those occasionally, but I, I'd love to hear more just because I'm looking at the amount of people that are listening. And that's far more than who actually ever um, I'm ever ever able to interact with. So probably the best way to do it is just uh, to um, to follow me on Twitter and to uh, send me a direct message there or um, wh- however you want to do it. And that's just simply at Kyle Reynolds. So uh, K-Y-L-E-R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S at Kyle Reynolds on Twitter would probably be the best way to do it. Um, but thanks. Thanks for listening. Let's get into it. Um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Okay, so uh, I want to break this down into kind of two ways that we misinterpret the idea of righteousness. Because uh, this is a good news. This is good news for people who are listening. It's not another to-do list for them. It's not something that they're not. It's something that they already are. You don't give poor, disenfranchised, marginalized, oppressed people a to-do list. You give them good news that, guess what? You already are blessed just because of who you are. And so Jesus is looking at this crowd and he's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's getting across to them that like you're living this out. This is who you are. And as readers of this 2,000 years later, we're like super challenged by this because we're not much like the crowd. Oftentimes... Instead of hungering and thirst for righteousness, we settle for, as my professor, Dr. Metzger, puts it, fast food righteousness. I'll, just, I'll read how he puts it. He goes, it entails taking matters into our own hands. It also entails the sense that we are the ultimate decision makers on what is right or wrong. A fast food kind of righteousness. And in vocational justice work, when you're caring for people who are um, experiencing poverty or mental illness or homelessness or mental um, or uh, addiction recovery or whatever it might be, when people are in some sense of poverty, oftentimes what burns people out that are in those positions of trying to help, even if it's in a volunteer perspective, oftentimes what what burns us out more than anything else is we come up with the belief that we are entirely responsible for the needs of others. When you start to believe that it's all on your shoulders, unless you show up and do something, that person's screwed, 
that's the best way to get on the on ramp towards the freeway towards um <laughs> that's was, was a terrible uh <laughs> I got like halfway down that path of trying to like roll out that impromptu uh, metaphor and then as I was doing it, I was like oh this is awful <laughs> okay but you get what I'm saying <laughs> this is just it's a really great way to get burnt out is when we start thinking that we're entirely responsible for the needs of others <laughs> um and 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 it's it the reason why this happens so often is because we're caring for the needs of people and and if you have you ever had like someone that you're interacting with and you're caring like they're in need and whatever it might be you know and it and it goes from like they're asking for help and you give them help and then they ask for more help and you give them more help and then it goes from like them asking for th- something from you to now you start feeling like they're asking for parts of you. You know how like it, if there's this like this boundary that somehow got crossed and and now you like feel as if you're just and you're continually indebted to them because they continually play the victim. And that's how the relationship dynamic between the two of you somehow got set in motion. It's like permanently fixed there where they're the victim in need of help and you're the person coming to help them. And if you don't come and help them, then they get to continue to play this victim card, placing you always indebted to them. It's actually a form of manipulation. And it's a, it's in that sense of like feeling uneasy and, and maybe you lash out and get angry or maybe you just burn out, right? You just you ghost them, and you don't ever talk to them again. It's 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 this reaction to feeling like this boundaries crossed because they no longer are asking things from you; they're asking for parts of you. And and um, yeah, and, and it and it's um, ultimately it it ends up becoming undignifying of you and of them. One of the the the, the things that is probably most helpful for me to learn how to say. In all these years of trying to help people, it's just simply the statement, I'm not going to do that. Because I used to like apologize profusely, you know, which just perpetuates the cycle of victimhood. Of like, I'm so sorry I can't do that. Oh gosh, I'm so sorry. I hope I'll pray for you or whatever. You can hedge it however Christian you want. But like, but there's nothing to be apologize for. I'm not being like cold hearted. I'm just recognizing where I end. And they begin. And when I recognize that boundary, guys, it's actually really dignifying of the other. Because it tells them, it sends a message to them that you are your own person. And I'm my own person. And I've ended here in, in my relationship to you. And, and what I'm able to do for you, that has, that has ended. And now this is where you begin. Because you're your own unique individual person. And I, I think there's dignity in that. And I'm not going to cross that boundary either on my end. I'm not going to attempt to become you. And I don't want, I'm not going to allow you to attempt to become me. Does that make sense? It's actually wonderfully dignifying. It probably won't be received that way. But what you're doing is you're reinviting that person into health. Into uh, an, an avenue out of perpetual victimhood. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're pointing them to God because God is three persons in one. Some people would be surprised to know, like I'm actually really (laughs) pretty in the spectrum of things. I'm actually 
relatively pretty conservative in my theology. Like I, I'm a firm believer in the Trinitarian God, in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, three persons in one. Because in this, I see um, intimate relationship, intimate connection, where God the Father relates to God the Son, and God the Son relates to God the Spirit, but they are also, while intimately connected, also wonderfully unique. And it's a picture for me of what um, community looks like here in our world, that you and I, we are um, gloriously connected to each other, intimately connected, but also distinctly unique and and I get this health from from the Trinitarian God I've seen that sometimes insecure leaders um, will make their followers or their subordinates feel like it all depends on them as well too like you ever felt that like maybe it's like if you don't come then we're not gonna that's that's an attempt to cross a boundary no it doesn't always fall on your shoulders it's not ultimately up to you. I mean, go and work your butt off. Don't be a slacker at work. Like for me, I work my butt off at work. I come home physically sore most days, but, but there's also, it's like when my time there is over, it's over. I go home. And in most of us are probably in jobs where when we go home, there's more to do. We've left things undone. And if you stay and get those things done, you also are faced with the reality that there's always going to be more to do. There will be. That's the nature of my work. That's the nature of my wife's work. That's the the typical situation for most of our careers is there's always more to do. And so if you don't define those boundaries for yourself, no one else will. What I'm saying is it's not your boss's responsibility to make sure you take your vacation or make sure you leave when you're supposed to. It's not their responsibility. And you can get really increasingly frustrated with them or like, you know, like angry at them. That how come they're not a good leader? It's because it's not, they're not you. <laughs> you see, you're creating your own codependent relationship. You're your own person. You create your own boundaries. You define who you are and where you end and the work begins. I, I, I kind of feel like I'm saying that strongly, but I also know, man, oftentimes in this work of caring for people, we are just gloriously generous. But that also leads to uh, a ridiculous amount of burnout. And I would love to see people give generously for their entirety of their life, not for five years until they get burnt out and then just go buy a boat. (laughs) Ultimately, you and I are responsible for our own boundaries. And it actually is dignifying of ourselves and of others. It ultimately becomes a work that's filling, which is exactly what the Beatitude is pointing us to. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. That's the kind of work week that is remarkably fulfilling, that you feel like you've done your best, that you've done all that you can, and that the end of you is ended, and now it's time to rest. And Sabbath is, um, gosh, it's so dignifying. It reminds us that we're not machines, that we are people. We are human beings in need of rest. Okay, so that's fast food righteousness. Let's jump into self-righteousness. Taking a different spin on sometimes how we um, we can tweak what righteousness looks like when it comes to this beatitude and ultimately how it isn't uh, fulfilling. Self-righteousness, in my estimate, is a morality minus relationship or a morality without community. 
Um, it encompasses the the phrase you've probably heard from your parents, and I've even said to my, myself to my kids, the phrase, I told you so, right? <laughs> How come I can't go, I told you so, that's why. That's <laughs> the really overly simplistic idea of self-righteousness. It's a morality without a sense of relationship or community. Because the reality is the meaning of morality comes from relationship. It comes from community. And when we separate the two, that's when things get funky, right? It, it, the Ten Commandments, actually, um, if you look at them, they, they fall into uh, three categories. Either uh, how we relate with God, how we relate with our family, and then how we relate with all others. These ten rules are founded in relationship, even Jesus said in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. He's connecting these rules to relationship. But if we're not careful, we can, um, we can turn this into, uh, uh, because we, we're so anti-rules or anti-morality um, even, that you, you can't tell me what to do, that we, we only settle for only community, only relationship, and we, we put the rules on the back burner. And that's actually a form of self-righteousness. It's a it's assimilation. It's uh, some people would call it, it's like worldly Christian. Um, it's it's instead of um, coming like if our commi- our convictions are in front of us, we, we we go around our convictions to the world. Um, it's uh, it's how I uh, navigated swearing for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I've talked about this a little bit in the construction, deconstruction, reconstruction episode, but it's how I kind of navigated uh, what swear. I mean, for a long time, like I would just be like, a, I'd swear like a sailor because it's like, I'm free in Christ. I'll, I'll do whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> but, and, and it's true. I don't think our God is like up in heaven as some like, I think he's got bigger fish to fry, man, than when I stub my toe. If he's like listening and, and seeing if I said shoot or shit, you know, like did, did he did he put an eye in there? I don't know. They stubbed his toe. What's what's the jury gonna say? <laughs> I, don't, I think God's got more going on than whether or not uh, I swear when I when I stub my toe or f- trip or something. However, when you reconnect the words we use to relationship, it brings meaning to it again because. It's not okay for me to use any word that would hurt people, that would be designed to hurt someone, another individual made in the image of God that I'm intimately connected with through the picture of the Trinity. You know, like it's not okay, whether it's a swear word that you can say after certain hours on TV or not, like if it's any word. And that's what my... Laura and I were trying to teach our kids. I mean, obviously, there's like certain rules we have, right? Where it's like, yeah, you can't say the word, two words I just said on this podcast link. But but there will be a day when when he will be able to. But I hope that we're teaching him that I don't want you guys to use any words that would actually be, be intended to hurt people. Ultimately, what Laura and I are trying to teach our kids is that... Um, how to connect morality to community. I think this is why a lot of people struggle with porn. It's because um, in their mind, it's a, uh, it's a crime that doesn't hurt anyone. Until you reconnect it to community. 
and recognize that that person you're looking at on that screen was made in the image of God. I would suggest if you're struggling with porn to not stop looking, I'd, I'd say look closer. Recognize who that person is. That's the person divinely and uniquely connected to you and to this universe and to God. They're, they're brilliantly and wonderfully made in the image of Christ. And it's not okay for us to um, materialize and um, and hurt someone in that way. When we reconnect morality to community, it, it brings meaning. So if it's not assimilation, another way that we tackle righteousness is um, we take morality and we take away community. So instead of assimilation, it becomes isolation, right? And instead of worldly Christians, it's otherworldly Christians, right? Instead of going around our convictions, we just stop short. We never even try bothering going into community. We just stop short at our convictions. It's the age-old phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, all right? <laughs> Was just basically a way of saying that I don't, I don't give a shit. <laughs> like, like, seriously, what? Oh my gosh, I'm so tired of that that phrase. You know what's a better phrase? Love the sinner, hate your own sin. Like that that's righteousness, right? <laughs> Other one is self-righteousness. We, we make these um, predetermined rules in our mind that actually guide us out of community. It's the, I never give money to homeless people, which get, excuses me from actually even seeing them as a human being. I'm not saying you should always give money to homeless people, but just don't create predetermined rules that excuse you out of community and relationship. It's um, on the liberal side of things, too. I've seen it just as much, just as prominent. It's the person that continually deconstructs their faith. It can become a form of self-righteousness. Like they just become the, the same exact version just on the other side of it. They're a fundamental liberal instead of a fundamental conservative. See, fundamentalism, all it is is just a decision that like I'm not going to be tolerant of any other ideas except my own. You've just become the other extreme, the other end of the pendulum. It's stopping short. It's um, it's taking morality and leaving a sense of community. It's back when we first got married. I was like, you can get a cat, but I will never pick up the cat litter. I will. That's gross. I'm never going to. You can have your cat. I'm, I'm making this rule, right? It's silly. I know. But if I love my wife, I'll pick up the cat litter because <laughs> the love goes before the rule. Right, that's the point. That's the rule: is to love the, the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love others. That's the rule, right? Is to love. So, which are you most like today? Is it like an isolation where you stop short that you've put these rules in place? And I get why we do. It's just to protect ourselves. It's because maybe because we've had our boundary crossed and I won't be taken advantage of again. So I'll put these rules up to protect myself. And and that's okay, but they should lead us back into healthy community, not isolate us from it, right? Or maybe it's assimilation where you've just given up the rules because you're free in Christ. You do whatever the hell you want, but you're hurting people. And ultimately, it's actually just only about you. It's just another brand of self-righteousness. It's what you set out to leave. Uh, maybe a third way is um, instead of isolation or assimilation, it's a, it's a form of incarnation where it's, it's morality plus community plus the Holy Spirit 
Instead of worldly Christians or other worldly Christians, it's world Christians. We don't stop short of our conviction or go around our convictions, but we go through our convictions full of grace and truth to love our neighbor as ourselves. Right? We like Christianity is the reason why I am open minded. <laughs> Because I think Christianity, going through that conviction, has made me wonderfully open-minded about the world and other religions and other, other people's cultures. It hasn't isolated me. It's made me more open, posture to the world to celebrate the interconnectedness of humanity and how we're also wonderfully unique. That's propelled me, not isolated me from this idea. I'll give you a good example of this, um, this incarnational or like an actual picture of righteousness. It's way back in the book of Exodus, chapter 1. And if you remember right, um, that Moses is, is, uh, is being hunted, right? And, and so uh, you remember the story and he gets put in a basket and goes down the river and, um, and the, like the Pharaoh's trying to kill him, right? Well, there's this, this little seed, which is just interesting. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, it says this. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. So they didn't kill the kids like the way the Pharaoh ordered them to. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? So, oh, they've been caught, right? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So they're like, we didn't even see the kids. They were all gone before. And then this is what it says afterwards. So they just blatantly lie. Like they help these kids escape and then they lie about it. And then in verse 20, it says, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. So God's like, hey, you lied? In order to save some kids, good job, guys. Keep it up. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> but doesn't one of the commandments say you, you shall not lie? Actually, it doesn't. It says you should not give false testimony, which brings it back to an idea of justice. That if someone's being oppressed and marginalized and you get brought up on stand and say, are they being oppressed and marginalized? And you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. So that person continually continues to be living in a world that's unjust. God's saying as a commandment, no, that's not okay. Because that's not in right relationship with each other. That's a self-righteousness, a fast food righteousness. Do not settle for that. But if you're going to lie in order to help some kids from dying, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. Because you're connecting morality to relationship, to community. Imagine the alternative, guys. Because sometimes we picture God like this, which is just so jacked up. Imagine these midwives are like, you know what? We got to follow the rules, and so let's not lie. And Okay, Pharaoh, here's your, the kids for you to slaughter. But hey, we follow these rules, and then God shows up. And he's like, you know what? Great job following those rules. Sorry about those kids. I mean, that's not a God I can trust, and I don't think you can trust him either. I'm riled up today, guys. I'm just saying let's connect the rules to relationship because that's where it gets its meaning. Otherwise, we become self-righteous, and the world looks at us like we're weird and crazy because they don't get it, and neither do I, and neither does God. He's looking for righteousness, and it's ultimately about putting the world in right relationship with itself and with one another, that we are wonderfully and intimately connected to each other, but yet also beautifully unique and separate. 
That's what God's saying when he's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Those midwives, they were filled. They were like, yeah, we did the right thing. We connected morality to relationship. So ultimately what I'm saying when it comes back to like um, this kind of construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, Stan Mitchell one of the pastors at my church, he brought up a new idea that it doesn't end there, right? If you're reconstruct, if you're deconstructing a house and then you're rebuilding the house, you're rebuilding it in order to live in it. And so after reconstruction comes another phase of our spiritual journey, which is habitation. We, we begin to live in this new way of life. We don't just like, it's not an intellectual ascent or it's like some study guide. We, we live this out, Otherwise, it, it can be, become narcissism or just like this intellectual pursuit. No, it's an ex- ever-expansion of our capacity to love the world. It's, incarn- it's an incarnation of our faith. It's an embodiment of our faith as we live in the beliefs that we've like painstakingly decided upon as we've gone through a deconstruction and reconstruction process. It's a righteousness that expands our capacity of love. When we hunger and thirst for the world to be made right and for the world to live in right relationship with itself. Beginning with me as I embody this Trinitarian relational world that we live in. We are all intimately connected and we are wonderfully unique. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled See, this This is what happens when I take a week off, guys. I get all riled up. Sorry about that. I just <laughs> got, got a little riled. I just, I think righteousness is a great word. I think it's a beautiful word because it's, it's, it's longing to put this world back in right relationship with, with itself. And we've, we've so often settled for um, an alternate meaning that ultimately is not filling. Go and live this kind of grace out. That is not assimilating or isolating, but it's an incarnational way of living. That we're wonderfully connected and yet brilliantly unique. See you guys next week.